Hey guys, it's Tom here. I wanted to jump in and give a quick editor's note really quickly. Uh, I wanted to give you guys the update that uh, the original audio files that we record separately for today's episode uh, had some issues. So luckily we had a backup recording that we always save on Zoom. The only issue with that is that it records as one track and it limits my editing ability. So if you notice any minor audio issues or things that were hard to remove, I do apologize. This is not the usual circumstances. I'm still fairly happy with the episode, but just wanted to give you guys the heads up at the top. So thank you for bearing with us and please enjoy. Welcome to our podcast where we ask the question, remember the odds. My name's Courtney. And this is Tom. And we cover everything from the 2000s from a very uncomfortable Carlsberger commercial to scarf belts. And from when Zach Braff was a successful writer to a not successful writer to a doctor. Yep. And to a director. And now a podcaster. He's also a a podcaster. Yeah. That Carl's Jr. commercial. Right. I remember that. And I know it's typical of you know, a male who grew up in that time, they're like, I remember that commercial. And I remember thinking it's, I don't, you pair it with a sloppy big burger. It yeah. doesn't appeal to me. It's gross. Right. Like to me, I just thought that's so messy. Also, we've talked before in podcast episodes about the sexualization of women and not wearing a lot of clothes. And it's not that I'm not for women owning their bodies and like wearing whatever makes them feel comfortable. Just if you look up this Carl's Jr. cheeseburger commercial, you know exactly what kind of sexualization we're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm totally cool uh, with right. and appreciate, you know, a women owning and respecting their own sexuality. And I also respect a woman who wants to eat a big sloppy burger. I just don't think it's um, feasible or or efficient to do both at the same time. Right. Uh, I would have much rather seen somebody in appropriate burger eating attire going, this is a good burger. Right, exactly. So that's just sort of like the perfect time capsule for what kind of advertisement was huge back in the early aughts. Now you have all kinds of women in airy commercials and Calvin Klein ads, you can see it's like a very different thing that people were interested in back then. And I'm glad yeah. it's changed. Yeah. The aughts were very hypersexualized. For sure. That leads to today's episode. Exactly. We are beginning our first mini series. All of the next following few episodes are going to have a similar theme. And we're going to start with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. A complete Yay. opposite to the girl eating a cheeseburger on a car. Right, exactly. Let's get into what a Manic Pixie Dream Girl is. It's this character title that uh, came up in a review by Nathan Rabin when he was watching Elizabethtown in 2007, which we're going to cover in a later episode. But you know what's funny is when you look up stuff on Manic Pixie Dream Girl, Hers is actually the last one that shows up or doesn't yeah. show up at all. I was going to say, uh, the movie we're going to cover today comes up more often than not. Yeah. And maybe that's because Kirsten Dunst's role in Elizabethtown, like Elizabethtown isn't as critically acclaimed as the other ones we're going to cover, mm. but it definitely did 
cement this style, this stereotype of this character. Ramona Flowers also shows up a lot, but uh, that's that's gonna be the last one we cover. Yeah, she's the tail end of our Manic Pixie Dream Girl series. Um, there are obviously a lot of movies that sort of are influenced by it or take the like Manic Pixie, Manic Pixie Dream Girl identity very, I don't know how you would describe it, like kind of cheaply. They just kind of take ideas from it and then that's it. Well, we're going to cover like the core characters in this series. Yeah. Well, I think what to get what you're getting at, like it's a, it starts out as a loose character definition. Right. And then it becomes a television and movie trope. Like I know, um, I picked my definition from the article from the Atlantic. I think it was with 2014 really good piece on the whole matter. Their definition is a well-known pop culture cliche. The term was coined by critic Nathan Riven, uh, described to be a cheerful, bubbly flight attempt. Oh, that was yeah. describing Kirsten Dunst. I thought it yeah. was describing all picks. I'm the worst. I'm sorry. No, but this is good, so because it brings up a good point. Cheery? Bubbly. Bubbly, to an extent where they seem like they're living in their own fantasy world, hence the whole pixie thing. Yes. Or dream. And also, they are usually in association with a sad white protagonist who can't figure out his life. And magically, she bestows upon him all of these wonderful things to show him that life is worth living instead of actually analyzing the personality and life of that girl. Like the movie focuses more on the sad male protagonist that she's helping more than her own actual life goals and identity. Yeah. And this is not, I think we wanted to really stress this, this is not a criticism or an attack on the alt-girl identity at all. Like, this yeah. is something that means a lot, especially at that time when, mm-hmm. comparatively speaking, there was a hyper-sexualized marketing, very, you know, beauty emphasis and, you know, very objectifying imagery going around. There is this, you know there is something to be said about this alternative identity for female characters who even at a surface level tend to have a little more agency. Yeah, because for me growing up, seeing these movies with someone, with a female lead who isn't ultra sexualized or isn't demure, someone who is outspoken and makes mistakes and dyes her hair and wears wacky clothes and doesn't care what other people think, was really something that I grew up admiring because I needed that. I needed to be out more outspoken. I needed to express myself more freely. So looking up to these characters was actually a good thing for me. Yeah. yeah. And it's there's nothing inherently wrong with the character itself. The problem we look back retrospectively. And it's a problem that's worth discussion more than it is like blatant criticism. Is right. we we reflect back and look at how these characters in you know, in spite their own uniqueness, how the trope starts to develop that this character becomes sort of a you know a end all be all miracle for the male protagonist to fix all his issues without introspectively looking at himself. Right, exactly, and also, you know, it's. <laughs> have you ever seen that uh, Tumblr trend? But it's also just a trend online where it says a woman written by a man in a novel. 
I probably have, but that sounds funny. So it's about this idea that like when a when a guy writes a woman in a book, he's always writing, she's not like the other girls. So it's not really necessarily a criticism for a unique outspoken female character. It's more about the way that the male writer is portraying a female character and using her to fix the problems of the male protagonist. And it's not like this malicious thing, but there is this issue where you have certain expectations and and ambitions of this person. We, as a culture, especially when you are, you know, a young man, you know, who's not a jock, you know, who's who likes to be a little more creative and intellectual, but goes through something and is failing to failing to address personal issues. And probably identifies with the male protagonist because yeah. usually the male protagonists in these movies are not the macho jock type. No. They're a little bit more thoughtful. They're a little bit more pensive and timid and maybe they're going through something. Yes, they usually are. And they're usually yeah. ignoring that thing. Yes. Usually, and that's the problem with this trope is that it's usually the male character ignoring a very serious issue and finding resolve in throwing everything at this female trope, throwing everything at her and saying, this everything is about loving you, doesn't matter anything else. Also, we talked about this yesterday. Um, the frustrating thing about writing in these brash, abrasive female characters is that there's always a point where them being so outspoken or being a little wild suddenly becomes unattractive and and suddenly involves the male protagonist making her feel bad and making her feel guilty for being that person. So once it becomes unattainable, then all of a sudden it's something that she should be ashamed of. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think that happens so much in the movie we're going to cover today, but that is a problem with the trope. And Right. Yeah. It's definitely going to come up in future ones, but the one that I am thinking of the most, which is my favorite one that we're going to cover next does still cover the consequences of relying on the manic pixie dream girl and realizing that she is not somebody that you can control and she's not somebody that is going to stand up for your shit when you want her to. Yeah, exactly. And I think because we talked about yesterday and I just had this kind of thought, I'm like a lot of the characteristics, like the aesthetic, the personality, of the aughts Manic Pixie Dream Girl is mm-hmm. kind of a carryover from the 90s kind of alternative grunge scene. Right. Like even movies, I was thinking about like Ghost World, you know, movies like that where, you know, the female lead is the, she's the alt girl. She's not the typical, you know, model. I'm thinking of Juliette Lewis in a lot of her movies. Yeah, or even right. Wyona Ryder in um that movie she was in with... Uh, Ben Stiller. Yes. He also, yeah. Like the 2000s, you know, Manic Pixie Dream Girls kind of carry over that. But whereas in the 90s, these, these were women driven agency, you know, stories, the aughts, it, you know, kind of becomes about taming that person. Right. And fixing him into this mold of a relationship. And Olivia Gatwood did this spoken poetry five years ago that's called Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Um, I suggest everybody check it out. It's on YouTube. And in it, she kind of gives one side of it where 
this is directly in relation to the movie we're going to talk about today. It's about handing the lead the headphones to listen to the music. She's giving him the life. She is bestowing it upon him and flying away instead of him finding the music, finding the life for himself. On the other end of it, a few years ago, the creator of the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl, Nathan Rabin, ended up writing a piece about how much he regrets making that term because he did realize that it is kind of a sexist way to just pigeonhole the creative, outspoken type character into just always being a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And he even references uh, Zoe Kazan in an interview for her movie, Ruby Sparks. Somebody asked her like, oh, don't you think your character is just a manic pixie dream girl trope? And she says, I think it's a terrible way to just look at my character. And I think anybody who just immediately assumes a character is a manic pixie dream girl has not taken enough time to see the individual character for her complexities. They just immediately slap that trope on and forget to pay attention to the rest of it. Yeah, and that's a beautiful point, because again, like, our thing is not criticizing the character themselves. It's the relationship with the male character, usually in a, you know, male written script. Right, and how much of the female character is actually autonomous, has their own identity, figures out their own problems, or is just there to service the male protagonist and you don't really find out anything about them, which in the Manic Pixie Dream Girl's most basic form is that. We gave a really excellent breakdown, I think. Yeah, this went much better than yesterday. We had a really (laughs) rough day trying to do this, you guys. (laughs) I feel like a proper sociologist. Right. And also, I feel like a few people have passed away that we've been talking about. Um, Ennio Morricone just passed away. Yeah, wow. We literally talked about him last week. We just talked about him last week in regards to views, which is wonderful. And then then, um, Ian Holm, who is in Garden State, passed away. Yeah. And also... One of Zach Braff's best friends, Nick Cordero, who is struggling for three months with COVID-19, just passed away too. Oh, no way. Yeah. And I really do appreciate what Zach Braff said. He said that his last text from Nick Cordero was asking him to watch over his wife and his son. And Zach Braff said, I'm going to make sure they're taken care of. I miss you so much. And I will always be here for your family. Like, it was really sweet. Oh, man. Yeah. Tough. Yeah. So I do think whatever criticisms we have for this movie, it's a criticism of a movie that is at least 15 years old. Oh yeah, you no, know? it's it's not even cancel criticism. It's reflective no. criticism. It's Yeah. Cuz that's the thing, like even if we want to compare, you know, narrative storytelling to real life, no one starts out with this malicious malicious idea. It starts from a place of insecurity and true admiration. But Mm -hmm. when you neglect to face your own issues, you can become emotionally dependent on the validation of that person. And that's where the problem stems because when you seek that constant validation, you're not attempting to fix the problem you inherently had. Right, you're putting all of your focus on another individual and distracting yourself from the actual work that is needed 
inside. And also, I know that Atlantic article said because real life is affected by movies and what's represented in movies, that the writer was afraid that women would start to see themselves in service of men and helping men figure themselves out with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. But I always saw the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as her own independent character. And I just thought like, wow, she's so cool. I want to be as enigmatic and mysterious as that. There is also the Manic Pixie Dream Boy. Oh, yeah. I saw Mindy Kaling had something to do with that, right? Yes, there's the Manic Pixie Dream Boy. And I guess the modern day Instagram version of that is the E-Boy. Oh, gosh. The E-Girl, E-Boy. I don't know if it's... I see there's, there's, who knows, going too far ahead. We're in the yachts. Right. We're, we're in Garden State now. <laughs> we're going to start with our first movie in the series. We're going to start with Garden State. I recognize you from TV. Didn't you play the retarded quarterback? Yeah. Are you really retarded? No. I thought you killed yourself. What? That wasn't you? No, no, that that wasn't me. I have a little bit more nostalgic attachment to this movie. We'll go into the actual movie plot a little bit more in depth in different scenes and how certain complexities in those scenes are a little bit worse now than they were back then and also how different things affect us looking at it much later in life than when it first came out yes Mm -hmm. courtney can you tell me the plot to the movie garden state (laughs) the movie starts with this actor who is waiting tables he's very bored with his life he's very numb and he has only had one big movie that has come out it's done really well but the thing is when you're done with that movie you still gotta wait tables and so he's living his life in LA when he gets the phone call that his mother has passed away he goes to New Jersey to go to his mother's funeral and this is the part that really shifted for me as an adult like being somebody who recently lost a parent seeing those moments resonated with me a lot more than when I was a kid. Oh yeah. And I think what's interesting for me is because I didn't watch this movie until like last week. Right. So I, it's, I came into it with a fresh perspective and that the movie kind of does a really good job where that theme is kind of looming over the whole movie, but mm-hmm. like the character himself. And like you mentioned, he kind of starts out fairly numb. Yeah. The movie starts with a scene of a car of a plane crashing and everyone's hysterical and there's noises and everything's moving around him and he's just like it's hot in here i could use some macy yeah that's it and the even the mise-en-scene of the movie it's just very um the way that the framing is done the set design like his apartment is just a white like it's all white right which at this point i feel like is also a little overdone yeah it's its own trope and it's a little but like it, it gives it paints the picture right away. Like this is a guy. He's indifferent. He's very numb to it. Very much in a lithium state. Mhm. Mhm. And that's when 
you find out pretty early on that he has been medicated for a very, very long time by his dad, which we just have to throw out there is very unethical. If you're a dad and you're a psychiatrist, do not medicate your child. That is not up to you. You should send them to a very good coworker. Yeah. Oh, and that's also another brilliant plot of this movie that I don't think gets talked about as much because like people see this, it is a romantic movie, but more so like when we talked about the main protagonist not addressing his own issues, this Mm -hmm. is one of those themes that I wish was better explored. And I think you made a really good point yesterday. We're saying like, if this were made today, this might be more of the focus. Right, exactly. Like when we were teenagers and we saw this as a romantic comedy and about somebody who is sad and trying to find themselves, that is something that really resonates with you as a teenager. And I think as an adult, the thing that resonated with me more and I think would be the movie as a whole now would be the fact that he has to deal with his mother passing and this very complicated relationship with his father. Yeah, because it's a relationship where all, you know, a lot of people have with their parents where there's this boundary set of how much is my parents' protection overbearing of my own life? I wonder how much of this is actually based off of Zach Braff's life. I know he said that a lot of this is inspired by him, but I wonder, like, was he on this sort of medication growing up? Did he really feel truly this numb or was that more of a creative choice that's a good point I don't know but like there is that like the complicated relationship between a parents and their child especially when it comes like because in at the end of the day his father was you know as we'll come to find out throughout the story was trying to protect him emotionally yeah but that then inhibits his growth as an individual right and it's not his choice to decide what his son can handle emotionally Yeah. I think that's something that every parent battles with is that at some point your child is going to be in emotional pain and you want to do your best to protect that, but you also can't stop it from happening. In this case, in the movie, he does literally try to stop it from happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we see it when he, because, you know, he gets to his, he gets to the funeral and he doesn't shed a tear. Like he's still fairly numb to everything. Right. And then they add that part that I think is to make audience just a little less uncomfortable with seeing a funeral very early into the movie is the woman, Jackie Hoffman, singing the song at the funeral service. Yep. Yeah. Which I know, like I told you, we used to sing it all the time as kids, but like it still hit that funny bone when I watched it a couple of nights ago. There's yeah. something about <laughs> that woman singing that just... Is so I like anytime any person sings dramatically and it's obviously very cringy, I'm like, yes, I'm here for it. That was beautiful. Um, and then so he goes to see a neurologist, right? Yeah. Oh, wait, we're actually we're forgetting Peter Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard and also the the actual point of this movie, which is Sheldon is a knight at medieval times. Oh god, yes. So yeah, that's the, it, you guys. That's that's it for the episode. Yeah, <laughs> nothing else. Sheldon in a suit of armor. Nailed. Sheldon is a knight at medieval times, and he's sleeping with Peter Sarsgaard's mom, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's something. So while at the funeral, he uh, meets some friends from high school who work at the funeral home. Yeah, and that's played. It's uh, 
his name is Mark, played by Peter Skarsgård, who invites him to go to a party. Right. And at the party, we see a bunch of young adults. Questionably uh, of age. Questionably of age. At the time was appropriate and is not anymore. No, I don't think it was appropriate back then, but it was... It was yeah. already a little uncomfortable, yeah. But like, we have this interesting dynamic where you have two male characters, same age, you know, both kind of trying to figure their own stuff out. But Mark, played by Peter Sarsgaard, is a lot more content in his environment. And like, you even see that in their personality traits. Like, Mark's like, carry, the way he carries himself and like everything he does, it's a lot more messy, a lot more involved, a lot more chaotic compared to Andrew's, where it's just very lithium state, calm, white, and indifferent. Right. You look at their professional careers, right? You see this actor who did a very successful movie versus a grave digger who is taking jewelry from people who have passed. And also uh, one of my favorite parts in the movie is returning goods he never bought at a store because they don't cut cans. Yep. Yeah. So you look at one person and just society is going to praise Zach Braff's character more than Peter Sarsgaard's character. But the thing is, Peter Sarsgaard's character, Mark, is actually more comfortable with himself, more confident in his self-identity, and fine with the life that he lives in, whereas Zach Braff's character has no idea what the fuck he's doing ever. And also, Mark does make a character arc. Like, he has, he is a different person by the end of the movie. And his way of growing up is all introspective. He makes yeah. the active decision to change. It's much quieter than... It's very quiet, yeah. Yeah, it's much quieter than Zach Braff's transformation. I keep saying the actors' names because at this point, they've really outgrown the roles and the names for their characters in the movie are just so un- unnecessary for the movie. We just say, yeah, Natalie Portman, yeah, Zach Braff and Peter Sarsgaard because... They could be any person's name, Mark, yeah. Andrew, it doesn't matter. But yeah, I, I like Peter Sarsgaard's character a lot more this time around than the last time. It's not that I had a problem with him, but I just didn't really acknowledge his character's growth as much yeah. as I did like a couple of days ago. Oh, because like that's the thing, like especially when you, I imagine when you watch this when you're younger, like you're, you're drawn to the two leads. Right. But there's like, you have these other characters and I think, maybe because I came at it at an adult, like a much later age and me watching it, I was definitely a little more drawn to like all the other characters involved. Yeah. Uh, Do we want to talk about the, uh, the shirt made out of the, the wallpaper? Yeah. I, that's one of those things that when I was a kid, I thought it was so funny. And then as an adult, I'm like, okay, that's a choice. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think yesterday I said that he doesn't kill enough of his darlings because it's his first movie and he just wants to add these little bits. What did you think of the wallpaper scene? I thought it was just the... Uh, because, like, the whole idea is it, it's really hitting the nail on the head, letting the audience know, like, he just blends in and is numb to everything. So much so that he fits into the wall that his oh, that's mom a good was point. working on. Yeah. I did kind of see it as when you're at a funeral for a family member you just do what you can to appease other family members especially as someone who it's very clear that he's resented for never coming home 
that he just yeah. puts on the shirt to please them and just stays quiet about it. And that's another thing too, is that he just doesn't speak up for himself. He never tells people how he's feeling, if he's angry or he's sad. So he just goes along with it. That's actually a really good point. I didn't even think about it like that. Cause you're right. Mm-hmm. And I, unfortunately having done a lot of these, I know that there is that pressure when, you know, you lose a family member and you hold like the weight, the wake and the funeral are almost unfortunately like more so appeasing everyone who comes. Yeah. It's like now you have the, not only are you mourning some, your this person's loss, you're now caring. Not, and I don't want to say it in a negative connotation, but like, it's just kind of this automatic role you fulfill where you're now, you're now also looking after everyone around you and there's people there. And if you have a moment of strength, you just through empathy, start to try and take care and, con- you know, talk to everyone else. Right. And also being somebody who's been through this, I can honestly say wakes and funerals are the worst part of it for me personally, because it is that feeling of now I have to be on for something that is just definitely off. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's an uncomfortable feeling that nobody's addressing and I have to be the, like, like but everybody's feeling it yeah everybody's yeah. feeling it and you kind of have to put on this role like even if you want to say something or you have this struggle to like get some kind of emotion out you feel the need to kind of see the person next to you crying and like make them feel better i'm glad we're talking about this now more in depth today than we did yesterday because i remembered that in a future movie to come this is going to come up a lot more for the plot of that movie. Mm. I don't think it's as well done, but I still appreciate it a lot as a teenager. Like I I still liked it just as much as all of these when I was a teenager, but now that we're talking about it, I'm like, Oh, that one wasn't so great, but I think it's a good thing to cover. So basically, you know, he sees his friend at the funeral. They decide to reconnect. Zach Braff's character goes to the party at his house. He wakes up. He's got balls written on his forehead. Sheldon is a knight. Fucking Peter Sarsgaard's mom. So there's some tension there. And they're just having breakfast together. Yeah. Yeah. And I still love the line when Sheldon walks away and says, by the way, it's his balls on your face. (laughs) Like, it's always funny. Because you know what's hilarious about it? We notice it when Zach Raff wakes up. We see that he has balls written on his forehead. Right. But it doesn't get addressed for an entire five minutes. Right. Until, and you almost forget about it. You like, you forget about it because we're like, what's weirder than having balls written on your forehead? A man in an entire suit of armor making coffee. Do you remember going to Medieval Times as a teenager? I remember going in like middle school. Oh yeah, yeah. We went in middle school, right. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember- it. You did? I loved it. Did you not love it? I don't remember it. Okay. I loved it. I got a wooden sword because it reminded me of Sora's wooden sword in Kingdom Hearts. And Nice. It's something that I've wanted to do again, and we've talked about doing again, but nobody can go to Medieval Times right now, so it's going to be a little while longer before that happens. Medieval Times is too... Um... Certain elements of the medieval times are too real to what's going on right now, so... Yes. (laughs) We are uncomfortably close to that. That's a good point. 
Um, and I feel like it's a very Northeast thing. I don't know if people around the country know what medieval times is. I think it's a, it, it, it's not as much like you're right. Like, yeah, there's definitely more of this Anglican, like fetishization in the Northeast than I think in certain parts of the country. Like we look back and we're like medieval times, like these old English knights, you know, and stuff like that. I think uh, in other parts of the country, they monster truck rallies. That's a good way to look at it. I was thinking just that we have medieval times and other places don't. They're, they do. But you're but looking at it much more sociologically than I am. So that's good. That's good <laughs> that somebody's doing trucks. that. Monster trucks. Monster trucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after the party and after the breakfast scene with Peter Sarsgaard and his mom and the guy from high school that she's having sex with, um, he goes to a neurologist's office to go get his head checked out because of the medications and getting these very quick migraines. And that is where we meet Natalie Portman as if she just magically appears in the background. She literally does magically appear in the background. Right? Her character's name is Sam. I remembered this time. I forgot until you said it. I was like, oh yeah, it's Sam. That's right. But from here on out, that's the only time I'll mention Sam. It's just going to be Natalie Portman from now on. Right. And, at, and Zach Braff said in an interview that when this movie, when he was looking to cast this movie, that's when they had already finished making episode three, Revenge of the Sith. And it was already pretty clear then, even though it didn't come out yet, that this did not do so well while they were yeah. making it. And he really thinks that uh, the failure of Star Wars is what helped him get Natalie Portman for the role because she wanted to sort of cover up her career and do something that people would commemorate and be excited about. Yeah, of she wanted to avoid the typecasting, like especially when you look at people like Carrie Fisher, rest, you know, rest in peace. We miss her. You, you see that, like, unfortunate typecast. And I think Natalie Portman brilliantly kind of distanced herself and became, like, a character, you know, an actress of her own. Because she's right. always done movies like this. And, like, one of my favorites that came out, like, I think, like, 2011 or so, called uh, Hesher. Yeah, yeah. Which, like this movie, does deal with loss. and has like maybe the most metal chaotic version of the manic pixie dream boy i've ever seen played by Hesher Joseph is definitely a manic pixie dream boy except he'll kick your ass yeah don't call him a pixie but he'll kick oh. your ass so i think that natalie portman's career like is really taking off at this point and i think she made the right choice to say i'm gonna do this indie gem and that oh, way absolutely. people will not see me just for this one thing. Yes. So she bestows upon him the headphones with the, the shins. Magical headphones. She says, have you heard of the shins? What are you listening to? The shins. You know them? No. You gotta hear this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. Oh, I'm sorry. You have to. Uh, I gotta fill out your forms. Conundrum. Think you could uh, maybe listen yeah, while I think you could? I can it. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. 
It's good. I like it. This is actually how I found out about the shins. That is fair. And I do still love them. What I think is funny is that they came out with a different album when this movie was released, but because of all of the attention, the music from the movie got them, they actually re-released the album that the songs came out. Are you real? I didn't know that. Yeah. So they released Shoots Too Narrow, which was the first album I ever bought of theirs after this movie. And I realized, I was like, oh, those songs aren't on it. That's okay. I'm going to listen to it anyways. Cool. But because everyone had that same reaction and wasn't as nonplussed about it as I was, they re-released the album with Caring is Creepy and New Slang on it. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it got them a lot of success. I mean, more power to them to pick up on the momentum. I, I love the movie soundtracks. It's not as prevalent these days, but then you get some movies that have killer soundtracks. Yeah, I feel like this whole set of movies that we're going to cover in this miniseries have pretty iconic soundtracks. Even Elizabethtown, which isn't as popular, the the soundtrack I still stand by. Oh, I like with, because um, the last movie we're going to cover, spoiler, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I remember buying the soundtrack immediately like not downloading it yeah. like this was 2010 i could have very reasonably just downloaded it illegally but i 50 percent of that movie is all music i down i bought it bought the cd and that was my jam for the longest time and i right. still think about it today where like if i hear one song i just got to put the whole thing on yeah exactly or you have to like listen to it over and over and over again like I do with Black Sheep as soon as I listen to Black Sheep once I just have to repeat it over and over and over again oh that was that's great that's my introduction to metric yeah yeah so just as important to Scott Pilgrim music is uh to that movie Zach Braff curates all of the music in Garden State including sort of giving the shins a platform in early aughts indie music so This is where he meets Natalie Portman. And I don't know about you, but I felt like her actions were kind of childish. They were. Like, they made me think that she was actually a lot younger than Zach Braff's character. Um, that definitely was a thought in my mind, because I'm like, oh, she's behaving like a child. <laughs> and it's right. not a criticism as it is a weird moment of reflection going, all right, Zach Braff's 26. Is this girl also 26? I hope she's 26. I sort of assumed that when I was a kid. I didn't really think about it because I, and maybe that's part of the draw-in is that they wanted her to be more relatable to the way teenagers act and the way children act. But, you know, even just the first things that she says where she's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're really, ret- you're really not retarded. <laughs> not, like, which is oh. not aged well. <laughs> no, even then I was a little like, oh, that's not great. But at the time it was more acceptable to say retarded. Now yeah. you just shouldn't use that word. Just don't say it. Yep. Don't say it. But, you know, so after even he has the neurology appointment, he runs into her again and he gives her a ride home on his on like, old school World War II motorcycle that has a side passenger car but she says i am not riding that because i am not your bitch 
I think yeah, is even, what she says, right? Yeah, she said sidecars are for bitches. <laughs> <laughs> this movie. Yes. Uh, and then they, he drops her off at the house and she starts defending herself for being weird and lying all the time. And I was already at that moment like, Natalie Portman, you do not know this man. You do not need to defend your actions to him at all. Well, she says, oh, my boyfriend's going to pick me up, but uh, I'll take a ride home. And then they get to her house and she's like, I lied. I don't have a boyfriend. Yeah. And she also said like, oh, I'm here waiting for a friend. And then the uh, neurology nurse is like, oh, Sam, we'll be with you in a minute. So it's very clear already that she's messed up. Yep. But yeah, I felt like the part where he, where she's defending herself and saying like, I do weird things. Like I just, I lie all the time, but then I feel bad about it. I'm just like, why do you need to defend yourself to this person? You don't need to explain yourself to him. You don't even know him. Yeah. And he's a sad sap that had a dog hump his leg and he couldn't just tell the dog no. He couldn't push the dog off of him. Right. I also don't condone when she says kick him in the balls. It, I I don't either, but you know what it is. It comes into play later when you when they're at her house, right? And the house is full of animals. It's full of antiques. It's chaotic. It's colorful. Another right. key important element. And it's it's an interesting contrast visually from where we see Andrew in the earlier part of the movie to now. He's in this environment, and her environment, like Mark's, is a lot more chaotic, full. Colorful. Yes. Uh, Which is an adjective that's definitely used, I think, over the span of all of these movies to describe the manic pixie dream girl. Full of color. Yeah. And lots of dogs. And like, I don't condone kicking a dog in the balls. Right. But if someone who had that many dogs was telling me, you know, oh, just, you know, they act up, just, you know, brush them off. Brush them off. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be like, you have all these dogs. Yeah, yeah. And a dead hamster. Yeah, an insane hamster cage that just does not make any sense at all. No. No wonder that hamster died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I do like about this part, and like I said, is part of rewatching it as somebody who lost a parent and having different grief experiences is that you see the different levels of grief when she brings him into the backyard to the little cemetery that they made for all of their pets. Uh, Literally the same week that my dad passed, my hedgehog passed a few days beforehand. And at that time, that seemed like the biggest grief at the moment, not knowing that something greater was going to happen a few days later, but still appreciating the different levels of those experiences I think that's what this movie captures really well in this moment is that, and they even talk about his mom, is that there are different levels to grief and they can be sad in their own way or they can be thoughtful in their own way. Yeah, and there is this, it's a meaningful moment and I think it's an important moment. And Mm -hmm. it is in a way the start of her like kind of resolving his issues. But I think the more important takeaway is the discussion they have where they're literally in this hamster cemetery yeah you know and even though it's like it's a hamster and they even joke like oh yeah many of these have died there is this she has this connect to all of them and she's it's him reflecting on his relationship and like 
he has a you know an unhealthy relationship with his parents but he still is numb to it and it's a beginning thought process the gears in his head going why am i not allowed to feel something during during this time i love the part where he says heard you have a bit of a problem with the wheel and she says don't be rude (laughs) because he's the one who's had the greater loss and he's trying to make a joke and she's like this is serious i need you to get it together this is still a funeral. Have some decor. I was gonna say side note, and I can I'm gonna find try and find a picture of this. Uh, I had a hamster cage almost as crazy. Did you really? Yeah. Um. I was going to ask you. Don't you think that this is a little obscene? You know what it is. A hamster cage setup. Uh, it's a yes. Like no matter what, objectively speaking, that's an unreasonable size hamster cage. But I will say, when it comes to hamsters. If they're like the hamsters that when you say hamster and you type into Google image hamster, the first thing that comes up is the like common teddy bear, you know, hamster, like the little pudgy guy. He still has a neck, you know, like that's the image of the hamster that comes up. Like he fits in your hand. He's a little chub chub. But then there's other types of hamsters that are a lot more commonly, you know, found in pet stores that are called dwarf hamsters. Is that what Harvey is? No, Harvey is a teddy bear hamster. He's a oh, he's, okay. Yeah, he's like he's a large little guy. They're essentially diff entirely different species, but they all get called hamsters. Okay. Like with a teddy bear hamster, you can only adopt one. Oh, they are not okay. they are not social animals and they will actually fight if you put two in the same cage as adults. Like as babies, they're, you know, they're part of the litter. After I think like six weeks, I know way too much about hamsters. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I know a lot about hedgehogs. So and like it's, af- it's very similar. Yeah. After six weeks, they they that's when they reach their maturity. They cannot be around other adult hamsters, and that's the problem. A lot of bad pet stores don't acknowledge because then you'll have one kid adopting like three teddy bear hamsters, and then wonders why one of them's dead. Like right. They so, either mate or they fight each other. Yeah, exactly. You get. So. For a teddy bear hamster, you just need a cage where he's happy exploring. Dwarf hamsters, on the other hand, they don't have necks. (laughs) They're just little round gray balls of fuzz. They are Ed from 90 Day Fiance because he has a neck. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, if you held one upside down, it would look like Ed. That's amazing. But, um, these guys are a lot more nippy, like, they are a lot more prone to biting. Versus the teddy bear hamster, which almost will never bite you. Okay. Dwarf hamsters are a lot more social. Like they do, you should have more than one. And the problem is they're supposed to separate them by their biological sex. But uh, like I said, pet, pet store employees aren't always the most attentive. So when I was a kid, we adopted two what we thought were boy hamsters. Uh, turns out one of them was not a boy. Nope. And they had a litter of 10. Oh, boy. And we decided to keep them, but we decided to get two cages and connect them via the tubes. Okay. But then uh, we didn't realize how quickly the hamsters, dwarf hamsters reached maturity. Because after like a month, we had two more litters of 10. Oh, God, really? We had 30 hamsters. Oh my goodness. So, so at one, and then we just bought more, more and more tubes to make, connect the cages. 
and we eventually just had this wacky, wild, crazy, bizarre, large, like two cages with a bunch of tubes running around a full of hamsters. So your hamster home looked a lot like Sam's hamster home. Yes, but that was a, here's the thing. <laughs> Sam's is one, still obnoxious for even dwarf hamsters, but two, that was a teddy bear hamster that she was holding or a yeah. log because it was clearly a, a log. It was a very fake hamster. Very fake dead hamster. But that hamster, like I said, you would not have more than one of those teddy bear hamsters. Okay. Well, that makes sense then that it died. Uh, the one thing that bothers me at this part of the movie is that I wouldn't have got when I was younger is the way that they talk about her brother Tetembe. Oh boy. Yeah, we talked about this before we started shooting, is that the language that they have Sam using is very clear of the arts in regards to the fact that it's not very sensitive and it comes off very privilegy now in 2020. She is very clearly like, oh my God, you're not gonna believe it. Like he was one of those kids we did like a cup of coffee a day for, and he like was born with bugs on his face and stuff like that. And it's just like, oh, okay. Literally right. any everything about that character would have been fine if she didn't say that. Right, if she didn't say stuff like that, or oh my God, I can't believe you're not retarded. Yeah. But like I said, this is the part of, the movie where we are watching something that is over 15 years old at this point. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she has her moment where she has a unique original thought, which I don't think at this point anybody would truly be attracted to. No. When she does her little like blah, 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 blah. As a kid, I thought, wow, that's so... She so clearly doesn't care what people think. She's quirky. And now I'm like, that's just stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Then he's back at home. And throughout the time that he's home, his dad is trying to address him. And he keeps right. putting off his dad. Yeah. And also, I feel like this movie does cover the fact that when you do have a family member who dies, who sort of was the glue of the family, and there are unresolved issues between the other family members, you have to either address it or just sort of bury the hatchet to get over the fact that you lost the glue in the family. Like you just have to pretend that everything is gonna work out even if you haven't actually worked anything out with the remaining family members. Yeah, after this hangout with Sam, I think that's when he, his father first time, for the first time tries to address him. Yeah. Then, um, then he starts to hang out with his friends um, yeah, he kind of blows him off to go hang out with people. Yes, and then he brings Sam, and they, what are they, I think they jump into, they go to some guy's house to go in the pool. Yeah, she is around him and his friends a couple of times, one of them including the part where he throws an arrow, and she has to, they have to avoid it. Oh. Yeah, because their friend figures out the recipe for silent velcro and becomes and super makes, wealthy becomes super wealthy and i do like the addition to his character that even though he's clearly made more money than all of them he's very clearly still miserable and bored out of his mind yeah they're all man children yeah yeah this movie is about a bunch of who bestank the reason people who are like, ah, oh, I can't figure myself out. Oh no. 
And the thing that she does with him where she says, like, okay, let's do a sign for when I want to leave, the tugging on the ear. Uh, Joe and I actually used to do that in high school to each other. Really? Yeah. Uh, when I showed Joe Garden State, at that point, he had seen Scrubs first. He had never seen uh, Zach Braff in a serious role. And I had the complete opposite experience where I saw him in Garden State first and then Scrubs. Mm. So, uh, and I think you were there for this. I know we're still in question about this, but... I decided to show Joe Garden State because he said he had never seen Zach Braff in a serious role. So when we were in high school and I think my first couple of years in college, anytime we were uncomfortable, like we would do the ear tugging thing. Yeah, so she hangs out with his friends. At some point they jump into a pool. And this is where you start to see like a little bit more of the intimacy between Zach Braff's character and Natalie Portman's character. Peter Sarsgaard's character decides to bring them on a journey for the last leg of his trip. Yes, which I was very surprised to see this person in the movie. He's only in it briefly because part of their adventure takes them to a hotel room. Yeah. Uh, I know that part is definitely you know, not okay now. Yeah. But do you know who that guy is? I know it's somebody, and I wanted to look it up, but I forget who it is at this moment. It's Method Man of the Wu-Tang Clan. It is Method Man. Okay. Yeah. Which I, I thought was sure. really cool. that he, Like, even for a brief moment, it was really cool to see him in this movie. Yeah. No, he's hilarious in the five yeah. minutes that he's in the movie. I was very confused by this moment. I was very confused. Uh, yeah. Are they, I thought, because it's, I thought, that they were watching, like they were all peeking in on porn. That's what I thought they were looking at. Like, oh, this no. is no, that was um, yeah, they were watching somebody do it. I imagine, right? They are all basically participating in sex crimes by watching other people have sex without their consent. Mm. Yeah, and I think at the time what it was supposed to be was sort of this moment of transgressive behavior, similar to something you would find in Chuck Palahniuk's writing. I think that they just wanted to sort of add more to the idea that Peter Sarsgaard's character is somebody who spends a lot of time with seedy characters and in daring yeah. kind of settings. Yeah. Yeah. Which I imagine if, because that's the thing, like, it was to portray him as this guy who knows his way around seedy areas. Like, he he finds himself in places where you're not supposed to go or are considered socially taboo. Right. But, um... Yeah, I think the point was just to make it, like, very controversial, even though over time it doesn't sit well. Like, I think you could... You could effectively... Because that's the thing. If the movie were trying to if that were a more integral part of the story, it'd still be uncomfortable, but at least it's serving the narrative. I think to deliver nowadays, to deliver the same idea that, oh, he finds himself in socially taboo places, you could do it in a not as inappropriate way. Mm -hmm. Like you can literally just have him be at some place that is considered socially taboo, but everyone's consenting. Right. It could be something that is society-wise considered controversial and taboo, but at least all parties a part of it have given their consent to it. Yes. 
Like, yeah. honest to God, even if it was what I originally thought, a bunch of guys hanging out watching a porno flick, that's socially taboo, but everyone's consenting. Right, right. Nobody's rights are being violated No. Uh, in that scenario that you've presented, which is much better. Yes. So then they go on to, is that before or after they cut cans? Or the they try to return the knives that don't cut cans? I think that's after they cut cans, I'm sorry. Okay, I do want to add, isn't that the guy who married Christina Hendricks? Huh. The friend at the, well, he's not really a friend, but obviously this movie uh, involves a lot of themes of running into people from high school and seeing where the different levels that they're at in their lives. And they run into one person who works at a Kmart yes. kind of location, right? That's him. That's the guy who married Christina Hendricks. Oh my God. I yes, loved the is. two of them together. I was so sad when I found out they were getting a divorce. They're getting a divorce? Yeah. They were I, so cute together. I literally just found out about this. It was happy and now I'm not happy. Oh, I'm so sorry, Tom. I know. I was <laughs> so sad to find that. There are so many relationships ending in quarantine. Oh, man. Yeah, I was really rooting for those two. Oh, well. Yeah. But uh, that is one of my favorite scenes where he just goes to the back of the shop, takes a set of knives, brings it to the return center. And when they ask Peter Sarsgaard, why are you returning these? He says, they don't cut cans. Yeah. And then there's a whole disagreement about why you would need knives to cut cans. And he's like, they said I could in the infomercial and they don't cut cans, so I don't want them. That's fair. Yeah. He isn't wrong. Um, so then after they go to the Kmart type store and they go to the hotel where some unsavory things are happening, uh, then they come to what is, I would consider, sort of the image of Garden State. They come to a small rinky-dink uh, house. like a, It's kind of like a trailer. Um, on top of a massive uh, canyon that they found while they were trying to build a mall. Yeah. And that's where they meet the guy who's sort of in charge of making sure that nobody does anything with the canyon while that property is in litigation. Uh, you're not entirely sure why they're there to see him and Zach Braff is under the impression that they're going to keep going to see these situations and he even says, I don't want to ruin the innocence of Natalie Portman's character. Which is a line that I'm also a little like, ugh. It's, it's him playing that protector role. Right. Like, I, I have to protect her. Which has its flaws because it's, and despite the fact that there is the inherent concern. Right, it's and also, it inherently means well. It means well, but it's also saying, I have to protect her. And it's like, yeah. well, she made the decision to be here with you, and you should think more about protecting yourself first. Like, right. the only way you're going to be able to properly take care of somebody else is if you take care of yourself and trust that when that person needs help, they'll ask you. She didn't ask you for help, Zach Braff. She did not yeah. ask you for help. And also, it does kind of create the tension again that, like, he's on a higher pillar than Peter Sarsgaard's character. Yeah. Like, he's in a place of where, where he can judge him, 
and Peter Sarsgaard kind of like puts him in his place and then they have like a little rough and tumble and they get over it. So uh, yeah, so they meet this character who is watching over this massive geological discovery and they have a nice little talk about life and love which just sort of like puts the two main characters together a little bit more and then you find out that they're there to retrieve whatever it was that Peter Sarsgaard told them they're going on an adventure for and then comes the big moment where it's raining and they step on top of some heavy machinery and just scream into the empty abyss. Yep. Um, which I did do with a couple of friends after seeing this movie. One of them had no idea what the other person and I were referring to. Have you ever screamed into an abyss before? I- I've screamed at something. Right. It's a very cathartic experience. It is. And I think it's, it was significant for him in that moment. I don't think it's a good idea to just cold turkey cut off all the lithium that you were taking, even if you weren't meant to take it. Yeah. Um, do not just go off that amount of medication when you've been on it for, at this point in the character's life, 16 years. Yes. Symbolically, it's in a significant scene because it's, you know, especially at the point it's raining, the, 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 the environment they're in is chaotic. There's three people in the frame and he's feeling something. So he screams and it's, it's an important moment and it's in a moment I appreciate but on when you actually look at it, like logistically, don't just stop your lithium. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it would not go as well as just, oh, I'm going to go about my day. I'm going to go hang out with my friends. There would be severe consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do talk about it with a doctor. Not if that doctor's your dad, but a different doctor. But this is like, I would assume this is the critical point for him as a character he this is the moment where he's kind of quote-unquote like he wakes up right this is a visceral moment for the director and the writer to say my character is feeling again yes because everything that happens after this is kind of like it's weird because he does take some action but it's only based on the fact that he was forced into this scenario by his friend mark and sam right like, this wouldn't have happened without them. Yeah. And going on this adventure. Yes. Um, but I, I do think that at the moment, it is supposed to be not just a moment for him, but it's a moment for all three of them and just anybody at this point in your life, when you're in your 20s and things are confusing and you are technically an adult, but you don't feel like any of the actions or any of the rewards of being an adult are any clearer or make any more sense. No. And especially since you're supposed to be an adult, but like Mm -hmm. with Andrew's character, and I think this is where his parental relationship is more interesting than anything else. Right. He's supposed to be an adult. He's expected to be an adult, but he's still being taken care of as if he's a child. And that literal coddling from his father has prevented him from feeling and growing as an individual. Right. And also, you can kind of see how the dad does struggle to see him as a grown-up who is dealing with the consequences of being medicated for so long because he hasn't seen his son in years. No. So he's sort of stuck with the idea of who his son was when he left home. 
Yeah. And it's clearly not the same person who confronts him later on. Yes. Yeah, so after they scream into the abyss, which sort of becomes the iconic image of Garden State, he kisses Sam, he's ready to live life, and they go home, and they have this like very sweet, intimate moment in the bathtub. And I do love when he says, I, I think a clear sign of love is when my mom let me use her hand as a tissue. I do oh, think that that's was, really yeah. sweet. Yeah. That was sweet. Yeah. So they spend the night together, and then that's when uh, Zach Braff's character feels vilified in finally talking to his dad. Well, before we get there, yeah, there is things about that scene. I, I think it struck me on a very personal level. Mm-hmm. And as an adult, I can look back and see my own flaws and kind of talk about where... Hang on, sorry, there's a fucking airplane. <laughs> of course there's an airplane right now. At least it's not a grocery cart like yesterday. That was also one of the problems. Yesterday was just a really bad day for recording. There was a woman walking back and forth outside my apartment with a shopping cart. I said she should join us in the podcast conversation. I said but... I don't want her in my apartment. I don't know her. This could be bad. And I'm like, she yeah, has, just bring her in. She has a weapon. Right. The <laughs> cart can easily be turned into a weapon. Yes. But to get back to, like, what I was saying, like, it's inherently there's nothing wrong with it except in the context of how it's happening. And I can relate to that, uh, you know, in a way, like, this is not this movie's not reflective of everything I've been through, but there's just certain beats and character developments and lines that are said that I'm like, I've definitely been in this position and I can definitely see where things can go wrong. And mm. it's the moment where they've only known each other for three days. Right. And she is helping him process this huge thing that just happened. And, and I'm not even saying that that's inherently wrong. Like we are social beings we need the guidance and support of other people but sometimes the dependency on other people's validation can lead to in the in the inhibition of our own growth and there's a moment where she, they're hugging and she asks him how do you feel and he says safe yeah you did mention that you're right that i know that and i mean maybe i'm being a little personal but that's a moment where I've been like, I've definitely said that. I've yeah. definitely, and not only said it, but felt it. And it was a vulnerable moment and I'm not regretting the experience and I'm not regretting the person. But I think the takeaway from it as an, as an adult now, looking back on my own life retrospectively and looking through this movie, the, the problem in that is that by having that validity and having this, like, being legitimized by this interaction, I almost kind of felt that by constantly taking care of this person, which is a throwback to when Zach Braff says, I don't want to ruin her innocence, by trying to take care of this person to seek that validation, you then start to ignore the issues that you are inherently presented with. 
Right. And also the weight of their conversation is the weight of a conversation you should have with your therapist when you haven't had that sort of emotional breakthrough in a very long time in your life. It doesn't belong on the weight of your relationship with a girl that you literally just kissed for the first time. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's yeah. also the problem with the trope. Like, right. Because in these types of movies, we're only seeing his perspective. And even though the movie does have scenes where she talks about having epilepsy and how she was a figure skater before uh, epilepsy sort of ruined that for her, like ruined those opportunities for her. The thing is, is that those scenes are very forgettable. And even when we talk about the movie in hindsight of seeing it, I don't really think about those scenes. Yeah. I think they were just there to sort of create a basis for her character, but it doesn't do that much. Yeah, and the reality is she isn't she is a person. She's in she has an individual with her own agency and there are, you know, her own flaws. And with yeah. that, when you because the issue then becomes if you're with somebody and you become emotionally dependent on that person, and then that person you know, it's just a complexity of like, this is an individual with their own life, their own set of circumstances, their own problems. And the moment you become dependent on somebody and things start to go downward, you become, it's harder to better take care of not only them, but yourself because right. you're no longer two individuals addressing issues that you both have. You become this companionship that's entirely dependent on each other's validation it swings both ways right and also even though they present those details about sam's life as if that's supposed to help build up a character the entire movie is about andrew and his other male friends figuring out what they want to do with their life it's never about what does sam want to do with her life does she feel like her epilepsy and the fact that she has to wear a helmet at her job ever impact her goals or what she wants to do with her life. That never comes up in this movie. Yeah. And like the inherent thing is that we're not assuming, and I definitely am not assuming that Zach Braff's intention is to ignore or disregard the intentions of who this person is or what her agency is. It's just that limited perspective of this story. It's not the highlight. You know, I'm, right. Yeah. It just shines a light on the fact that what we were talking about earlier, which is this is a female character written by a man writer and director. Yes. Yeah. And not that like a man couldn't write that character better. It's just that we became, this was like for a short time, the accepted standard of like, oh, this is a good enough character. It's like, well, no, there's a lot more complexity to an individual for good right. and exactly. bad. Like, you know, for good and bad, like sometimes an individual in this set of circumstances is not necessarily an amazing or great person. And if you're seeking right. validation from a person who can turn out to be pretty nasty, you put yourself in a bad position. Right, exactly. And, you know, it, it's just more about the idea of during this time or the idea that a writer, like a male writer, is writing the role of a female who is not completely fully formed or is just sort of these bits and pieces to help cater to the protagonist. That's really when 
we're here to crit critique it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add to the scene? Because I think, because the next scene I find to be more, it's, it's, when the, it's a scene that I wish the movie emphasized a little bit more. No, it's totally fine. And that's what I think is good about like both of us watching this movie is like, we're both picking apart what we can relate to, what I did relate to when I was a kid. And also like what you're picking up on throughout your own life too. So I'm glad that we like stuck on the bathtub scene because I do sort of see it as this intimate moment, but also it's good that you brought attention to it because I am also a caretaker. Like I am the kind of person who would sit there and try to take care of this person in the bathtub while they're expressing themselves. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, Thank that's you. the thing. It is a beautiful, it is a beautiful scene, but it just knowing from my experience and also the context that he met her three days ago. And like right, you said, exactly. you said it, you put it best. This is like, like the real, the ideal thing is you want to feel safe and vulnerable with your partner. That's the ultimate goal. But for right. someone who literally got off a plane three days ago, was at his mother's funeral, is ignoring, they had their first kiss. Is ignoring his father and cold turkey quit that, uh, not value. That lithium. Lithium. And a bunch of other stuff too. Yeah. It's like, this is, this is the conversation you need to have with your therapist first. Or right. a therapist who's not your dad, which brings right. us to the next scene. And also, I have to say, like, at the time that this movie came out, it did bring quite a lot of attention to depression, which is very important, and also the consequences of taking a lot of medication that is not properly suited for you. I have also seen a few people in my life be on those kinds of medications and it not go well. So at the time, that was very parallel with what was happening in real life, but now we're far enough into society where we can say like medication is good if it's the right one for you the individual and it's yeah it's supposed yeah. to be used as like a supposed to be used as a tool along with therapy not the end-all be-all numbing agent right exactly like you shouldn't be numb on those medications you should still be able to feel it's just to help you feel better yeah right and those are all like things that are best suited for a doctor who isn't your dad, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes into the other room to talk to his dad. And I, I, I love this scene. And I think Ian Holm was such a treasure. I do wish that this was more of the core of the movie. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, is this the moment where, because I know they talk about it and he this is the first time they actually talk about their mother. Together. Yes. Yeah. The only thing that they ever really say beforehand is just, we should talk, your mother would want it that way, which sounds kind of toxic. It's not, it's not the right way to approach it, because then no. it sounds like you have to do this and you should feel guilty if you don't do this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the moment where they start addressing it. And because there was this issue where, like, we get a little bit of it earlier, but his character when he was a kid. There's something to do with a latch. He talks about a shitty latch. But basically, like, the reason she passes away is uh, she was paralyzed and she fell in the bathtub and she drowns. And then you find out at this point in the movie that Andrew is not at fault 
for his mother being paralyzed, but there was an accident involved involving her falling because he like didn't close something properly, or at least that's how the father sees it. He sees it as something that Andrew made happen, but actually it was just an accident. Yeah, it was a complete accident. And this is, and it's, in, it's insane, but I'm not, I'm sure it's not far from reality for a lot of people. This is the first time they actually talked about what happened since that day. Cause he like literally after this, his father pretty much medicates him and sends him off to boarding school. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. I found it. Yes. Uh, so it says on Wikipedia, Andrew tells Sam that he pushed his mother in frustration when he was nine years old, which happens with a lot of children at that age, knocking her over a broken dishwasher in an accident that left her paraplegic. Yes. He says that his father blames him for his mother's paralysis and put him on his medications to quote unquote, curb the anger he supposedly harbors. Yeah. So you've had this character who, since he was 10, has been numbed by his father because that's the only way his dad knew how to protect him. But by doing that, he, is, he stops his growth. He stops his development as a human being. Yeah. Putting children on medication that early is a little bit dangerous because they're going into puberty and their body is inhibited by this medication. So their puberty and their growth is affected by this very heavy medication that they're on. It's difficult for any adult to be on a medication like that. So let alone putting a child on it. Yeah. Who was just unfortunately expressing his anger in a normal way at that age. I think if anything, his dad putting him on that much medication at that young of an age is more of just his response to his wife getting hurt. Yeah. And it's not a healthy response, but you could see that's his way of trying to protect his family. Yeah. And that's when Zach Braff, like, I, it's so funny. Like, sorry, there's a fucking mm-hmm. airplane. What's with the airplanes today? I want to talk about Garden State. I don't want an airplane in my house. They want to talk about Garden State, Tom. No. They're zooming in. They're like, hey, planes are an essential part of Garden State. We'll, we'll come in and commentate on it. Yes. <laughs> but essentially what I was saying. Mm-hmm. This is the moment where he kind of breaks down with his father and he says, I want to be able to feel like I want to be able to feel and you're just gonna have to accept that. I don't know if it's at this scene or some scene, but there was a quote that Zach Braff says that I actually really like. This is a very highlight quote for the whole movie. I don't know when he says it. And if you can tell me when he does, I would be grateful. I just wrote it down. I wrote it down in my notes and I unfortunately didn't write down when he said it but I feel like it might fit in here. He says, I'm 26 years old and I've spent my whole life waiting for something else to start. Now yeah, this I realize, is conversation. Now I realize this is all there is and I'm going to try and live my life like that. Yeah. It's a very relatable line. Yeah, this whole scene, I think, is really what the movie leads up to. And it's a moment where he, you know, says... This is how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to actually live it. Um, I think the more powerful moment is that instead of being angry at his dad, he just says, I forgive you. Yeah, and that you is. Tell, and you could tell the way that his dad reacts to his son putting his hand on his chest that he's already afraid. 
that he still sort of sees that little child who is angry and could hurt somebody. Yeah. Because when he puts his hand on his dad's chest, he flinches. So clearly he still doesn't trust the person who's sitting on his bed with him. It's especially, it's about control. And that kind of, in a weird way, is mirroring what Zach Braff's character is trying to do. Mm -hmm. His father has had this control his whole life and it prevented him from growing and feeling. And now this is his declaration of, no, this is the life I'm going to leave now. Ian is so good in this scene. Yeah. The, bring, the brilliant thing about forgiveness too, and this is something that I've talked about before with, like, I think with you and a few people, forgiveness is sometimes, I think actually most of the time forgiveness is almost equally about the person in pain, allowing themselves to let it go. And yeah. that's why it's, that's why forgiveness is entirely up to the person who has been hurt or abused or offended. It's not anyone else's decision or right to declare when you should forgive somebody. But as much as forgiveness is about the person, the, the perpetrator being, you know, understanding that it's all right, that it's happened and that they have been forgiven, it's almost equally as important for the person to, giving the forgiveness to allow the point to be like, you know what, the pain has grown. I, it's, I have grown, I have healed, and I'm going to let go of this anger or hatred. Yeah, it's not necessarily about forgiving the person themselves, but just sort of forgiving that it happened and forgiving that you can't change that moment in your life. Yeah, it yeah. can be seen as a cathartic release where the person who has experienced this pain and anger has decided on their own accord, I no longer want this to affect me. Right. Yeah, such a good scene. And clearly like the moment that Zach Braff was writing this movie for, I think. Yes. But so at this point, Zach Braff's character is getting ready to leave, which I think from JFK. Um, I don't know. I thought it, I just assumed Newark. I thought that as a kid too. But then when I looked at the scenery as an adult, I thought that's JFK. Really? Oh, it could be. It could be. Yeah. So he has this moment on the staircase at the airport where Natalie Portman doesn't want him to leave. And he says he's got to go. I have two thoughts on this conversation. Well, three. Three thoughts. And I'm going to go quick because we've been talking about this a lot. Um, And I don't want to exhaust all of our time on this episode. But one, Natalie Portman in this scene is... I think the part that I really identified her as a female lead that I could relate to because she isn't pretty crying. Yeah. It was like the first movie that I had seen where somebody was wholeheartedly crying and it showed on their face. And that I really loved as a teenager was to see a movie with somebody who was actually crying, not just the tear down the cheek. Yeah. Two. I could never watch Zach Brass face when he's delivering this part, the scene, because it does look a little melodramatic. Yeah. Yeah. And then thirdly, this is sort of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl encapsulation of she has done what she needs to do and now he's literally planning on leaving. Yep. So that, that's my take on the scene before he tries to board the plane. Yeah. I yeah. mean... 
that's the well you know what it is it's like it's conflicting because i i agree it's just like all right you did your job i gotta go back to la but there yeah. is i don't know how better and i think this is why there's a confliction here because it's like like if we're gonna go down this path of the romance movie because um do you want me to get where what his final decision is yeah, let's just keep going into, because yeah. I feel like at this point, we should just go into yeah. the rest of the scene. Yeah. Because no, I get what you're saying, like, he he thanks her, he loves her, he's like, I'm going to call you. It is still very much just, like, her next Waiting few on him. Yeah, waiting on him. Mm-hmm. So, but then he gets on the plane, thinks about it, she's, uh, she's in a telephone booth crying, and then there he is. He comes, he's like, I'm, I'm just going to wing it. Yeah, I'm going to stay here for you. Which is romantic and beautiful, but at the same time, like I said earlier, this emotional investment and expectations of a person mm-hmm. without, like, thinking about it. Like, neither of them have, we don't know because, unfortunately, the movie is not from her perspective and it wasn't fleshed out as much. We don't know her goals or ambitions. Right. And we don't know what his goal and ambition is now. No. He literally just threw everything away and said, I'm here. I'm staying in the Garden State. The Garden State, that is New Jersey, the title of the movie. Right. I kind of assume that he gives up on acting. Like, that's what I thought as a kid. I was like, oh, this is him giving up on his career. But also, like, New York City is not that far away. There are a ton of movies that get shot in New York City. True. Or he could work at a Jersey Mike's. He could work at a Jersey Mike's. His his name's not Mike, though. Oh, well. Yeah. Jersey Andrews. Yeah. So, the like, as with a lot of romance movies, the movie does end on the kiss scene, the, the passionate scene, and then the movie is over. Right. And even him coming to sort of save her from the telephone booth and save her from her crying frustrates me because she wouldn't have been crying if he originally just planned on staying in New Jersey. She's crying and he does this romantic gesture to stay is because she thought he was leaving. She was already hurt by it. Yeah, that was the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And it's a good movie. There are definitely, especially for a directoral debut, a lot of things I appreciated about it. Mm -hmm. Only one continuity error I picked up. Oh yeah? Uh, do you remember the scene where Zach Braff is at Mark's house or Peter Sarsgaard's house and they're sitting on the couch and his mom is nagging Peter Sarsgaard about getting a better job? Yeah. There's a brief moment and the only reason I noticed is because the editing was pierced weird. She's yelling at him and there's a, there's a medium shot of all three of them on the couch. And the cat? No, did you pick out another moment? Okay. No, it's just like when they're talking for a while, I don't see a cat, and then suddenly Zach Braff is petting a cat, but also the cat sort of blends into the earth tones of the scenery, so maybe the cat was there the whole time, and I just didn't see it. Maybe, but what I noticed is there's a moment where shopping cart lady's back. She knows we're talking about Garden State, Tom. God damn it. She's like, I like podcasts. We don't right. know that for sure, but that's I just true. assume that that's why she came out. So there's a moment where Mark is lighting a cigarette and he has it close to his face and his mom tells him something. And then the, and then the shot cuts to a medium close-up of just Mark 
but his hand is an entirely different position. Oh. Yeah. I don't Oops. know. It's nothing that important. I just, other than that, I really liked the direction. I liked the, you know, and for the most part, I liked the writing up until the certain point where there's not an addressment. You know what it is? It's, this movie is about the excitement of that relationship of finding this Manny Pixie dream girl, but it doesn't follow through on what happens next, especially since we have this character who just bails on taking his lithium doesn't Mm -hmm. i mean he starts to see a therapist but he doesn't follow through and he just says i'm gonna drop everything and then give everything to this girl because this girl i met three days ago makes me feel safe right and like we've mentioned before just getting off medication for that long will lead to a bunch of medical complications but also a lot of mental complications that you know are definitely going to affect that relationship later on. So even though he feels safe three days into the relationship, he might have a reaction to the medication that makes him act unreliable in a few weeks of the relationship. You know, there's a lot more that they're taking on there that they don't talk about. Yes. And what's interesting is that because this series, this miniseries we're doing ends with Scott Pilgrim, that's a movie that a lot of the issues I have right now with Garden State, in a way, Scott Pilgrim in a more humorous manner, but like those things do sort of get addressed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because you've uh, you've known I've always loved Scott Pilgrim, but I think yeah. you've always you've had a crit- maybe a critical lens of me because I think when I first loved Scott Pilgrim, I definitely loved it and was like Scott Pilgrim's the hero. But then, well, that's as, I, yeah, yeah. And as I got older, I'm like, oh no, he's a douche. Like he's an asshole. Right, but also I had the same exact thing with 500 Days of Summer, which you actually saw through first. Yes. Because I grew up in the 2000s. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think he's a cutie. Who wouldn't want to be in a relationship with him? But I think that's going to be my movie that when I go back and watch it, and has also been critically acclaimed as not being the hero of the movie, Like I will go back and see that in 500 Days of Summer more now this time around. Yeah. Yeah. But like, so the, so when you, it, it's interesting because like, I mean, I'll talk more about it when we get to Scott Pilgrim, but there is this interesting mm-hmm. dynamic where for me as a young adult watching it, my opinions change and I still love the movie. And I think that's where we got to come from this from like, these are character pieces. And as we grow and as we evolve, we can look at it differently and have fair criticism of it. Cause like, by the by now 2020 10 years later i look at scott pilgrim i still love it but i look at it very differently i look at it as this is a dumb dumb who in order to achieve happiness needs to change himself because he doesn't win with love he wins with self you know self appreciation and i think that's what's important about growth is that yeah. at the time that garden state came out at the time that manic pixie dream girl was popular they were popular because They were needed at the time. You have to take step one before you get to step five. And now we're finally at the point where we've grown so much where we can look back at this and say, this isn't enough anymore. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Or do you want to talk about the soundtrack? We got to talk about the soundtrack. Oh, I do want to talk about the soundtrack. Okay, so uh, the movie ends to Let Go by Frau Frau, which became a huge hit. Uh, after this movie came out, even though the band had already been broken up for a year at this point. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's with Imogene Heap and a producer whose name I looked up and completely forgot. But I was a huge fan of this album when it came out. Zach Braff handpicked all of the music for it and yeah. it won a Grammy. Um, and he brought a lot of attention to the different musicians that were featured on it, including Frau Frau, The Shins, and Carrie Brothers, who is a friend of his who he uh, refers to and uses later on for Scrubs. Yeah. Now, I'm looking at the soundtrack now. Is it ironic that one of the Shin songs featured on the soundtrack is, call is called Caring is Creepy? I love that song. I love that song so much. That name just seems super appropriate. I'm going to put it out there, and I apologize. I have not actually listened to the Shins. Um, that's fine. You don't have to listen to the Shins. It is produced by the same... Well, the Shins in general were produced by this producer who produced a lot of the indie rock sound that I listened to in the early aughts. Mm -hmm. So like Death Cab for Cutie, The Decemberists, basically the groundwork for making hipster culture Yes, is all within this music genre and the producer that produced all these bands. Uh, I, I saw the Shins a few years ago live and it was so much fun. They're so good live. I am going to check out the Shins, I promise. You should listen to their album, Wincing the Night Away, which does come after the success and attention from Garden State. You would think that they would fall apart then, but no, they get better. Right. Yeah. That's good, yes. Yeah, and I say that because I forget that the album starts with a song by Coldplay. Yeah, Don't Panic by Coldplay. Don't Panic by Coldplay. Uh, I think a band that does sort of go the usual trajectory of their music is really good. They hit a bunch of fame and then it just goes downhill. <laughs> like Maroon 5. We have to cover Maroon 5 at some point. I'm fine with covering Maroon 5. I'm just going to get very like, uh, anytime I have to mention Adam Levine's name. I know. I know it's so cringy, but I promise you that when that first album came out, I was in it. No, that you're right, because that that album is a staple of the odds. I just because it's all pretty much the Adam Levine show now, I just Yes. Uh, yeah. The man does meditation for 40 minutes before he has intimate intimate time with his partner. And I just feel bad for the partner because I'm like Does he want that? to be that much of a douche? Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> if I were cause like, oh my god, if I was just his partner and it's like all right now i gotta wait 40 minutes for adam to get ready it's like right. uh all right i'll you know i'll finish myself off and uh you can do whatever man Just whatever yeah i'll uh go shopping on amazon well you do that i'm gonna make a run to taco bell yeah <laughs> do you want anything how long is this gonna take man yeah um but yeah so I think Coldplay kind of covers that sort of trajectory. The Shins definitely find themselves, I think even more so with their newfound fame. I think that re-releasing the album with the songs on it from the Garden State soundtrack was a really smart move. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. You should listen to and watch the music video for Australia. Okay. Yeah, because it's a little bit more playful than some of their other music. I gotcha. Yeah. 
And right, cool. I don't know. I just, I really love this album. Alyssa gave it to me on a mix CD when we were in middle school. Mix CDs. Mix CDs. And if you look at the soundtrack now on Spotify, for the most part, it's all there. There is one song that I don't think he, the musician gave the rights to for releasing it for Spotify in that uh, soundtrack. And I think it's arguably the most heart-wrenching song. It's the mm-hmm. one that I just don't think I'll ever get over you. By Colin Hay. Yeah, that one's like the most soulful. and Definitely, you could tell it's a musician who's lived an older life and he's been through a lot more than probably some of the other soundtrack counterparts. And it's a really good song. I'm going to listen to it and cry. Yeah, definitely <laughs> cry. Yay. Do that. Yeah. Courtney. Mm-hmm. Tom. We talked about it quite a bit, and I think we've already got the opinion kind of solidified. But yeah. just to kind of ask the typical question, would it, this movie still do well if it came out today? I think if it were to come out exactly the way it did, then no. And there's actually, I'll say that there is uh, proof to back up your claim, because there is a spiritual successor to this movie that Zach Braff made. What, That's a few true. Years ago. I forgot the name of it. I'm pulling it up now. Wish I Was Here? Yes, that's the one. It's like the spiritual successor to this. And all the criticisms we had reflectively looking back on Garden State are the problems people had with the movie, that movie. So it's like, mm -hmm, because it is like beat for beat, the same thing. It's a male, you know, it's a, except now he's a dad and it's a dad, you know, grumpy old grumpy old slightly depressed white man finds happiness in another woman and not much else has changed okay i think that's why i haven't seen it yet but i think that's also why this movie wouldn't do well anymore is because we're past the point where we need and require movies that involve a sad male protagonist a sad white male protagonist we expect more from our characters. And I think since then we've gotten better movies that center around romance and the complexities of romance and just how much more depth there is to each character than there yeah. is. There's no, we've strayed away and the common criticism people will call it out if there is that savior character. And it's not just the many picks of dream girl. It's any type of character trope that is there solely to aid the protagonist of the story. Right. We're requiring more personal, actual growth from our protagonists rather than a character trope who comes in to magically save the protagonist. Yeah. We're just asking our writers to do better. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it shows. I think that there are a lot of really great romantic comedies that have come out on Netflix and Hulu. I think we're in a great spot for romantic comedies right now. Yeah, their and their platform is like the streaming services. Like they yeah. do a lot better on streaming services because, uh, well, one, no one's allowed to go to the movies anymore. No. Hopefully, that'll come back soon. I miss going to the movies. You know, I miss seeing a show on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to miss that until they said it wasn't coming back for the rest of 2020. Damn. Yeah, right? Yeah, that is rough. Mm-hmm. But 
I think that what you're saying is right, is that this is just not enough. This is not going to cut it in 2020 cinema and what, what fans want from their main characters. I think that if the script was skewed in the way that we've talked about, where it focuses on recovering from that kind of grief and also fixing a relationship with a father, I think that that would be better. Yeah. Or even just make Sam's goals more apparent. Yeah, we want, we are now looking for more introspective growth, like looking into oneself and one's flaws and, you know, better having, you know, better relationships, healthy relationships with the people around them. Yeah, exactly. So do you want to, do we want to pick a song off the soundtrack and put it on the, the Google Doc or no? I would love that. Okay. I think it's, it's kind of hard to dissect anything written by the shins because it's just it's bob dylan poetry basically like it doesn't make a lot of sense but we could we could try we could kind of hit the three we could add the three that have been really big from this movie which is the two shin songs and frau frau as hard as it's going to be to place them there's space for adding new uh themes this is entirely on you, only because I haven't heard any of these songs. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. But you know what? It's good, though, because I could just quickly read you some lyrics, and we can decide from there. Let me see. Okay. So, and Caring is creepy, and I just, like, want to start singing it as I read the lyrics. But he says, I think I'll go home and mull this over before I cram it down my throat. At long last, it's crashed. Its colossal mass has broken up into bits in my moat. Lift the mattress off the floor. Walk the cramps off. Go meander in the cold. Hmm. And I want to read the last. There's one line that says, this is way beyond my remote concern of being condescending. Okay. So... I've been wanting to add a couple of more themes, but actually I think this one fits in not okay. Yeah, sounds like it. I had been wanting to add some more themes, but I think this song in its like lyrical complexity just fits not okay. And also with the subject of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're one down. We got two more to go. New Slang, which is the song that is playing when Natalie Portman hands him the headphones. Okay. I don't know the contents of the song, but maybe mutual or self-assured destruction in love. Gold teeth and a curse for this town were all in my mouth. Only I don't know how they got out, dear. Turn me back into the pet I was when we met. I was happier then with no mindset. And if you took to me like a gull takes to the wind, oh, I'd a jump a tree, jump from my trees, and I'd a dance like the king of the eyesores, and the rest of our lives would have fared well. Yeah, this seems like a love that um, I think is sort of what will happen in Sam and Andrew's inevitable relationship, that it starts out with so much love and eventually his own depression is going to get in the way of it. Yeah, 
Yeah. Okay, let's put in self-assured or mutual destruction. Okay, there's one for that one. And then now we've got let go by Frau Frau. Sorry if everyone's hearing my typing, oh, but it is necessary for research. This is all research, guys. This is all research. Let's see. Now, let go by Frau Frau. You know who is actually a huge Imogene Heat fan? Who's that? Ariana Grande. Ah. Yeah. Mm. Not a lot of people know that, but she's a huge fan. Makes sense. We like side note. Yeah. I've noticed and like as an adult, I've got a lot more respect and appreciation for a lot of pop artists. Because like in an angsty Same. teenager, you have this like, oh, pop music, blah blah blah. But like as an adult, you realize like they are just as dorky and if not nerdy and into the same things you are, especially someone like Ariana Grande, who is spectacularly, you know, her voice is spectacular. Like it is, she's not just a, like, obviously she's part of the pop industry sort of machine, but she's not yeah. a manufactured singer. She is a legitimately good singer. No, she's a fantastic singer. I think it's honestly, I think it just comes down to who she works with and what she wants her voice to sound like. I think that really makes or breaks it for her with me because yeah. I can love some of her songs and I can also hate her other songs. Yeah. When she does the, I forgot the name of the song, but she essentially does that annoying voice character from that Nickelodeon show she was on. Oh God. Yeah. There's a few of them. Like I do like thank you next. And she does a song with major laser. That is really good. Mm. But then seven rings is really uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Okay, so I have been wanting to add a category, and maybe this is fair for Frau Frau's Let Go, <gasps> in which it's like the lead singer is saying to the person with them, just forget the world. Just forget about it. Like, you can just escape. That's what it is, escapism. Yeah, actually, yeah. That, that's a, yeah. There's literally a song from the aughts, like, it, I forgot the name of the artist, but it's... Is it The Great Escape? The Great Escape. And I was oh, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's when we those. reached, like, a mutated culture that had scene and, you know, music and other things had just sort of come down to this one concept. And The Great Escape is definitely a part of that. Yeah. So I'm going to... It's oh, literally, it's from the band Boys Like Girls, who we did yeah. talk about in our scene episode. We did mention them, and I um, remember when I was a kid, and I say kid meaning like any age that we were at between like, <laughs> like one and twenty. Um, but when I was a teenager, and I did summer camp at Bosies, somebody was literally playing Great Escape over their phone, and I hated it so much. That is a very two thousands thing to do because that yeah. was like oh, my phone could play music. I'm just going to jam out and let everyone hear what I'm listening to with your shitty MP3 quality rip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so even though we've said, like, let's, we don't have to put it into the new section just yet. If, like, when I le read the lyrics, you think it belongs somewhere else, but I'm going mm -hmm. to read the beginning lyrics. Drink up, baby doll. Mmm, are you in or out? 
leave your things behind because it's all going off without you. Excuse me, too busy, oh, writing a tragedy. These mishaps you bubble wrap when you've no idea what you're like. So let go and jump in. Escapism. Well, what you waiting for? Escapism, right? Escapism. Which I guess you could argue is kind of similar to denouncement of society, but I also feel like it's very different at the same time. It is different. Right. It's like you can have escapism and denouncement of society, but there are also very different elements of denouncement of society that aren't in escapism. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that just about covers it. Yeah, that is the episode. Yeah, we had a lot to talk about. I promise that now that we've gone over the concept of Manic Pixie Dream Girl, that the next episodes won't be nearly as long. No, but I think it's okay and it's appropriate. It's a very, there's a lot to cover, a lot of personal reasons, a lot of societal reasons, and a lot of, you know, just fun reasons. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and also like this is our first mini series, so obviously they're going to be a little bit longer than the standalone episodes where we cover just one thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. And with that, everybody, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Spotify. Um, and you can follow us on the Instagrams at Remember the Zero Zero S podcast. We could or- not get Remember the Ots as our title. So we got zeros instead of Ots. And as much as I like it, if uh, whoever owns the Remember the Ots, Instagram, I'm I'm looking for you. You're not using it. No. I've checked you out. Yeah. You're but, not using it. But please follow us on Instagram where we post weekly uh, our Zoomer correspondence segment, which is this beautifully well done animation by Courtney. Thank you so much. They're my Thank favorite. You. I love They're them. and So much fun to make. They're really fun. They're easy to send. And it's just with a mind of what the Zoomer thinks about the thing we're talking about. Yeah. So stay tuned for the next installation of our Manic Pixie Dream Girl mini-series. If you want to catch up, you can watch the next movie. What is the next movie? It is my favorite. My favorite movie of all time. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes, so if you want, you can watch and feel free to follow along because we will probably spoil it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You should definitely watch this movie so we don't spoil it for you. Because the whole... A a huge part of watching that movie is your own emotional journey that you go on while things unfold. Yes. So with that, guys, thank you again. Stay tuned. Bye-bye. It's good, I like it.